Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Judith Edge tells us about Samuel Pepys and the dangers that he faced during his life. I just want to talk a bit about my reason for choosing Samuel Pepys as my subject. It's partly because he straddles history and literature, and so do I. I studied literature at university, but I've always been very, very interested in history, and he's a figure in both, obviously. It's also because a long time ago I read Claire Tomalin's book, The Unequaled Self, and I was very impressed with it, and I've read it again for this, and it's wonderful. So I recommend that if you're short of reading matter and you've never read it. And it's also because I was feeling that we're living in perilous times ourselves. We might all be feeling that, us baby boomers who've actually been quite lucky in our lives, are feeling at this moment as though there are perilous times ahead. And I wanted to look at Samuel Pepys's light through that filter of the fact that people in the past have lived through incredibly perilous times and yet managed to achieve an enormous amount. Illustrative of this more than anybody else that I can think of in history, to be honest. So there we are. 1633 to 1703, and you can work out, because we all do it, that he was 70, which is a pretty good age for that period. And I'll talk some more about that later. Music was one of the absolute loves of his life, and he was very musical indeed, and played quite a few instruments, and there were hundreds of references in the diary to him attending parties and dancing and playing music. He did write a few pieces himself. He loved the good things in life, that's the one thing you can take from this. He loved music, he loved good food, he loved good company, he loved pretty ladies, he loved art. Everything possible that you could enjoy in life, he enjoyed. These are the perilous times, the civil war, illness, and 17th century interventions, pestilence, meaning the plague, disaster, fire, politics and plots, in turbulent times, and prison in the tower. So there you go. He was born in London, above the shop off Fleet Street in Salisbury Court, where his father ran a tailoring business. The house backed onto the parish church, St Bride's Church, where all the children of the family were christened. The River Thames was two yards below it. It was on the western edge of the city of London, which was then the most populous in the world, we presume anyway. Maybe there were 130,000 inhabitants and only 5 million in the whole country. If you went west from Salisbury Court along Fleet Street, you came to the gardens of the Temple Lawyers. Further west along the Strand, you are out of the city, to Whitehall. To the east was the only bridge, London Bridge, with its 19 arches and spikes for traitors' heads. The best way to get around London was by boat. There are hundreds and hundreds of references in the diary about peeps waiting for a boat to take him across, or waiting for a boat to go on business, or waiting for a boat 
go and meet somebody and particularly I'll talk later about getting boats to taking up and down the Thames so he could look at the fire of London. Now he was not well born. His mother was a washmaid in a grand household before her marriage which probably helped her a lot because she had 11 children in 14 years. And so I'm coming on now to the childbirth in 17th century. Childbirth was a very, very dangerous thing. An enormous number of mothers died and babies died. A quarter of the children died in their first year in that period, and half of them didn't survive into adulthood. So John Pepys left his native Cambridgeshire at 14 to be apprenticed. He was only just literate, although music was an essential part of the family life. And it's unknown whether his mother was literate or not. His family had little standing in the world, but his father definitely had connections, which matters almost as much. And Sam being the oldest surviving son and showing his aptitude from an early age, he became what Claire Tomlin calls the elected son, meaning the son that was going to go and repair the family's fortunes, the, the son on whose shoulders the hopes of the family were handed. It struck me that these days this happens as well. A family will put all their money into one child that they hope is going to rescue them from poverty. His family. Eleven children. Only four survived into adulthood. The oldest one, Mary, Sam knew quite well and was very, very fond of. She was very musical, apparently. And then John, who was just the brother above him, died aged seven. He remembered him very fondly and was not so keen on the youngest John. Often when a child died, another child was given the same name, but Sam never took to John the younger as much as he did to John who died. So there's Thomas, age 30, and then Paulina, the only one that had children, who died at the age of 49. Sam did well to survive the first peril childhood. So what was the next peril? I will just talk a little bit about his very early days, his schooling. He was sent by his parents because of the plague, because of the turmoil in London, to stay with his uncle Robert in Brampton near Huntingdon. His uncle Robert didn't have children, wasn't married and made him his heir in later life. And Pepys' connection with Brampton continued for the rest of his life. And possibly with the help of his cousin, Edward Montague, about which more later, very important man in Pepys' life, he gets a place at Huntingdon Grammar School. And apparently those buildings, the house in Brampton and Huntington Grammar School are still there. But approximately 1645, he leaves Huntington and goes back to London to live with his family. And there he attends St Paul's School until he gains a place at Cambridge. He ended up going to Magdalen, as I've said there, having gained an exhibition and later scholarships. He attends as a sizer, meaning that he has to do some duties in return for financial help. So it's obvious that through scholarships and exhibitions, a little bit of support from his cousin. He's got what was regarded as a pretty good education for the time. Didn't include maths, didn't include the arts, didn't include anything that we might wish to include nowadays. It was nearly all the classics. But his university career is not particularly distinguished. And in 1654, he goes home to his parents and he starts working as a general factotum for his very influential cousin. But I just want to backtrack a little bit now to talk about the fact that while he was in London as a boy growing up, the Civil War was going on. And if you can compare it a little bit to the Troubles in Ireland, you can see that there was a period where the people, generally speaking, had little control over events and you never knew what was going to happen from one day to the next. Poking fun almost at the two sides in the Civil War. 
but basically it raged around him as he was growing up. He would have seen a good deal of violence and cruelty on the streets. It was said that the war was begun in the streets of London long before the King and Parliament had any armies. Apprentices seemed always to be in rioting and there were random attacks on suspected Catholics who were the object of hatred because of the prosecutions carried out under Mary Tudor against Protestants. There was a fear that Charles's French Queen would convert him and the country back to Catholicism. Crowds surged to welcome their heroes and assembled to see the execution of detested figures. And there's an example, when he was about seven, William Prynne and Henry Burton had their ears cut off for offending the King and Bishop Lord, but they were released by the power of the commons. It was always this toing and froing of power between the King and the commons and cheering crowds lined the streets as they rode through London. The crowds also feared the king wanted to make himself an absolute monarch and abolish parliament. And the Puritans heartily disliked the established church and the tithes that had to be paid made them allies of the political opponents of the king. In 1642, when Pepys was about nine, the king's men were mobbed in the city by huge numbers of tradesmen, apprentices and seamen. We're not sure, but it's fairly clear that Pepys's mother and father were generally on the Puritan side. But the issue split the country, dividing families, cities, counties and social classes, the navy, the universities, the legal and medical professions, a bit like maybe Brexit did today. So we can see it was violent and you wouldn't want to send your child out into the streets of London. Now, what I didn't know, which I found very interesting, I didn't know that the commoners built fortifications all the way around London to close off the roads to the city. They built 20 forts, including in places like St Pancras, Mile End, Rotherhide and Whopping. And they were built by the citizens, 20,000 people, men and women, a sixth of the population volunteered. There was a fear that Prince Rupert would return to sack the city as he had done Brentford. It seems that Londoners and commoners in London were left-leaning, maybe like today. Most present-day Londoners know nothing of these immense earthworks, which were created by the people of London. It's not known if any of Pepys's family got involved, but his sympathies were clear when, in 1649, as a schoolboy at St Paul's School, he truanted to attend the execution of Charles I. It seems amazing to defend London and the city from the king and his men. Twice in 1647 and 1648, the new model army of Cromwell marched in and occupied the city with 18,000 troops. Rioting was endemic, both for the king's side as well as for Parliament. In 1647, a mob from the city kicked in the doors of the House of Commons and terrorised the MPs held the Speaker hostage, sounds a bit like Capitol Hill, doesn't it? And forced a vote, inviting the King back to London. So again, I would suggest it seems that generally speaking, although not totally, London was on the parliamentarian side. He's still a young man, he's 22, he's got no money. Pepys's cousin, Edward Montague, was a very important man in Restoration times. And he was very much a friend of Cromwell's because Cromwell and the Montague family were all in the same part of Huntington and they were friendly from a very early age. So Edward Montague was on the parliamentarian side, but then swapped, as so many people did, to the royalist cause. And he was prominent in both times. So what 
Samuel is doing is just general odd jobs. He hasn't even got a role. He isn't even paid. He's living in some sort of room in Edward Montague's lodgings or big house. I have to actually start calling him the Earl of Sandwich because that's what Edward Montague became. So what does he do? Instead of looking to marry money, instead of, of looking to find somebody who would give him position and security, and in fact, he didn't do that at university either, because I was surprised that he didn't choose to go into holy orders, which he could have done and which a lot of people did to make themselves secure. It's fairly obvious he was never taken with the religious life. And in fact, one of the things you realise about him fairly soon is that he was totally religiously tolerant. But he was a romantic and he makes this disastrous marriage. It was disastrous in some respects anyway. He met in 1655 and fell deeply in love with a penniless beauty, aged just about 15. Now you don't have to think he was a lecherous old man because it was perfectly acceptable to marry a girl of 15 in those days, and he was 22. She came from a French Huguenot family, Elizabeth de Marchand de Saint-Michel. She was higher in status than Pepys, her father having noble connections to the Anjou family, and her mother also had grandly connected landowning parents. All this sounds very impressive, though her family was virtually destitute and friendless when Pepys met her. And that was the problem. She was French speaking. He taught himself French, lively and pretty. And he married her because he loved her and because he could. There was no political or pecuniary advantage to be gained at all. It was a love match. As a love match, the marriage was tempestuous and they very much struggled both when they found it hard to make ends meet and later on. He did recall fondly how his young wife used to make coal fires and wash my foul clothes with her own hands for me, poor wretch, in our little room at Lord Sandwich's, for which I ought to love and admire her, and I do. He was very, very jealous of her. He wasn't exactly a handsome man. He was short, with fleshy features, and she was very pretty, and this caused major arguments. And also the number of hours he spent working and also socialising without her, including flirting and attempting to have sex with loads of other women, did cause some problems in the marriage. Claire Tomlin reports that his boss, the Earl of Sandwich, at one point solicited Elizabeth to be his mistress. Those were the times, but she refused. Between his infidelities, which were constant, and the fact that she was often too unwell to have sex, she had a problem to do with ulcers. It was a roller coaster relationship. But if you read any part of the diary, you'll see he confided her and his plans and hopes for the future ambitions were all imparted to her. And he was very proud of her because she was so pretty and lively and other men desired her. And it was true that he was devastated by her death at the age of 29 in October 1669, which was just after the end of the diary. So there we have it. Marriage did him no favours in terms of the world at all. This is the major peril, the one that is unforgettable. If you remember anything about Samuel Pepys and read about him. Looking back from his middle age, Pepys wrote that he couldn't remember any period of his early life when he was free of pain. And this was due to the kidney stone. His mother had them as well, and possibly one of his other siblings. And the condition was so bad he often passed blood, or as he put it, made bloody water upon any extraordinary motion. So he'd lived with this from childhood. But when he was 25, he decided he couldn't stand it any longer. He was going to have an operation 
and die rather than put up with it any longer. And so he opted to be operated on without anaesthetic. And I'm going to read you now a little bit of Claire Tomalin's description of what went on. Patients were advised to have the operation in the spring. Both cold and heat were considered unfavourable and the surgeon hoped to have bright sunlight to help him to see what he was doing. Peeps duly settled on the end of March. The preparations took some time. The sick person was advised to cultivate a calm frame of mind and to avoid anger or sadness. He should feel confidence in the surgeon, even affection. All this modern sounding advice comes from contemporary manuals. And surgeons were encouraged to give their patients an honest account of what they were to undergo. The operation was performed in the patient's bedroom. And there's a whole list of the things that they were given to eat before it was started. It included drinks with licorice, marshmallow, cinnamon, milk, rose water and whites of 15 eggs. And after this, he was asked to position himself on the table, possibly covered with a straw filled bag into which he could be settled while the process of binding him up began. Some surgeon thought it wise to say a few reassuring words at this point because the binding was terrifying. They were trussed like chickens, their legs up. A web of long linen strips wound round around their legs, neck and arms were intended to hold them still and keep their limbs out of the surgeon's way. The instructions for the binding alone takes up several pages of one medical manual. And when it was done, the patient was further bound to the table. Their hands were sometimes tied to their knees. And meanwhile, the surgeon lubricated his instruments with warm water and oil or milk of almonds. The catheter, the probe, the iterarium, the specular, the pincers, the small hooks and so forth. And he gets to work. He inserts a thin silver instrument, the iterarium, through the penis into the bladder to help position the stone. Then he makes the incision about three inches long and a finger's breadth from the line running between the scrotum and the anus and into the neck of the bladder. The stone was sought and found, hopefully, and grasped with pinchers. The more speedily it could be done, the better. Once out, the wound was not stitched. It was thought best to let it drain and cicatrize itself, but simply washed and covered up with a dressing. This is a no alcohol scene. We hear about on board ships people having their legs cut off and being given alcohol to stop them feeling the pain. Well, they didn't give people who had bladder problems, kidney problems, alcohol. So he would be unconscious by now, I would have thought, with the pain. And then it was left to heal itself. Fever, insomnia, pain were all to be expected. And above all, you would think acute anxiety. Was the bladder healing? How soon might he expect it to function again? If he moved, would he tear the just healing wound? Had the surgeon missed the prostate, something the manual worried about. Peeps was the type of patient who is likely to have read it all for himself. If you know anything about Peeps, he was meticulous in finding stuff out, reporting it and making a note of it. So he knew what he was in for. Recovery for those who didn't succumb to secondary infection was supposed to take 30 to 40 days and Peeps made it in 35. It was a triumph. By his own account, he was himself again by the 1st of May. Exactly two years later, he wrote in his diary of the 1st of May, 1660, this day I do count myself to have had full two years of perfect cure for the stone. It's a bit like reading the events in history from his point of view. And he tried to have a special dinner on that day every year to celebrate. He didn't keep it up, but basically it saved his life. And Hollier, the surgeon, apparently 
operated successfully on about, was it 30 patients that year? But the following year, his count was not so good, probably because of the fact that they didn't know how to use the instruments and basically disinfect them. So his joy was great. And therefore, this is when his triumph arising, his diary was started in 1660. So he was restored to life and to hope. And he was married to the lady he loved and he was out to seek his fortune. He used a form of shorthand that was often used in that period to take down notes, invented by somebody called Thomas Shelton. And when it comes to proper names, the names are written out, but everything else is in dot dash type shorthand, which took many, many years to be deciphered. So his rise after this, he'd already been the general factotum. He's appointed to the clerkship in the office of George Downing. George Downing's the man that Downing Street was named after, not a very nice man by all accounts. He was working for his powerful cousin, doing odd jobs and being his aide. It's almost like being his personal aide because Edward Montague recognised his abilities. He sails with the fleet that brings back Charles II. And because Edward Montague, now Earl of Sandwich, becomes so important to Charles II, Pepys also rises and he gets the appointment of Clerk of the Acts of the Navy and given an official residence in the Navy. Actually, he'd never been interested in the Navy. He didn't know anything about it, nothing at all. It was just he got it through Edward Montague's influence. So he starts working there. And at first, he's highly delighted to be mixing with Sir William Penn's William Batten and all these important people and socialising with them. But after a bit, he gets rather disillusioned because he feels as though they treat him as an inferior and they're not doing anything much by way of work. So he decides that he's going to work properly. He's going to do the work and he's going to get a name for himself by working. He has some mathematics lessons and he builds little models of ships. So he learns the names of the parts of the ship and he starts studying it all so that he can be inefficient in the undertaking of his duties. Right, 1662, Justice of the Peace, Commissioner and Surveyor of Navy Vittling. That was the most significant because, of course, he could give out contracts. He was such an important man and he had so much money because it was the, one, the biggest departmental government by way of spending of them all. He was an incredibly positioned power there. And in 1665, he was made a member of the Royal Society. But during this very period of the diary, of his rising, this is what happens. Plague was endemic throughout London and the country, and severe outbreaks were expected every few decades. 1592, 1605, 1625, 1636 were all bad years. 1625, 40,000 Londoners died. The rich usually left London. They knew it was contagious, but didn't know how it spread. So none of the measures were effective. In 1665, city records indicated 68,596 died though the actual number is reckoned to be over 100,000. Pepys didn't leave London during that period till August. He was working away at the Navy office and dealing with Dutch walls, but one wonders why he wasn't affected. It might have been the relative spaciousness of his house in Seething Lane, but it's suggested by Claire Tomlin that it was natural immunity because some people's blood is unattractive to fleas. And he commented that when he shared a bed in Portsmouth with a friend, all the fleas came to him and not to me. On the 5th of July, London having emptied, he moved his wife and servants to Woolwich, which was well out of London, and led a bachelor existence in town, which suited him fine. 
Claire Tomalin notes that Pepys's plague year was one of the happiest years of his life. Despite what was going on around him, he was very, very happy. It struck me, having recovered from the stone operation at the height of his powers and almost at the height of his influence, he's not worried about the plague because he's not going to die, is he? Just like young men, young women everywhere, age 25, yeah, it's not going to get them. This is what he wrote. The invincibility of youth, I've called it. When the death figures are at their worst, he wrote that everything else has conspired to my happiness and pleasure. I do end this month, September 1665, with the greatest content and may say that these last few months for joy, health and profit have been much the greatest that I ever received in my life. I have never lived so merrily. Besides, that, I never got so much as I have done during this plague time. So we move from that peril. It's just washed over him, really. And he noted it. He didn't seem affected by it. To the next peril, which is, we all know, fire, which affected him quite considerably more. At 3am on a Sunday morning, the 2nd of September, Pepys was woken by Jane, his servant. The servant had got up early to cook for a dinner party. I reflected when I read that. She got up at three o'clock in the morning to cook for a dinner party. That's the life of the servant. There was a fire in the region of Billingsgate. At first, it was of no concern to Samuel. He woke again at seven. The fire was moving, moving west, away from Seething Lane, because Seething Lane is on the east, near the tower. And so he thought again, because they were so used to fires, he wasn't too concerned about it. But then Jane came and reported that 300 houses had been burnt down and the fire was near London Bridge. He dressed himself and walked over to the tower and went up to its high windows as an observation point. And then he went down to the river and he got a boat and had himself rowed westward, passing under the bridge. Some people were very reluctant to leave their houses and waited to the last minute. And he noted, as did the pigeons. He instructed his boatman to take him to Whitehall, where Sunday service was in progress in the chapel. He went straight to tell people about the fire. The king sent for him. Pepys advised him and the Duke of York to order the blowing up of houses. So this blowing up of the houses for fire breaks was one of the only ways of dealing with it. And it's quite clear that Pepys is instrumental in saving fair bits of London, but also he ended up saving the office of the Navy because he suggested to Sir William Penn that they send for some of the seamen down at Deptford to come up the river and to help with the blowing up of the houses around it. And they came, and in actual fact, the office was saved. So he had a key role in the Great Fire of London as the first to inform the king and give him sound advice. He walks around London, fascinated by the strangeness of everything, and he wrote an account of what he saw on loose sheets of paper, because of course he didn't have his journal with them, and he copied them into the journal later. The fire burned for nearly five days. Approximately one third of the city was destroyed. 70,000 to 100,000 people were made homeless. 13,000 homes destroyed. 87 churches burned to the ground. Landmarks such as St Paul's Cathedral and the Guildhall were lost. These are the only bits of the diary I thought it was worth listening to to get a flavour of it because his descriptions of the fire have become, if you like, part of history. Having seen as much as I could now, I away to Whitehall by appointment and there walked to St. James's Park and met my wife and Creed and Wood. And to the fire up and down, it's still increasing and the wind great. So near the fire as we could smoke and all over the Thames, with one's face in the wind, you're almost burned with a shower of fire drops. This is very true. 
So as houses were burned by these drops and flakes of fire, three or four, nay, five or six houses, one from another. When we can adjourn no more upon the water, we to a little alehouse on the backside over against the three cranes, and there stayed till it was dark almost, and saw the fire grow, and as it grew darker, appeared more and more, and in corners and upon steeples and between churches and houses, as far as we could see up the hill of the city, in a most horrid, malicious, bloody flame, not like the fine flame of an ordinary fire. We stayed till it being darkish, we saw the fire as only one entire arch of fire from this to the other side of the bridge and in a bow up the hill for an arch of above a mile long. It made me weep to see it. The churches, houses and all on fire and flaming at once and a horrid noise the flames made and the cracking of houses at their ruin. So home with a sad heart. And then he talks about getting his goods away I mean, everybody was trying to transport their goods on boats towards safer places. And he gets his gold and his iron chests. And it says, I got my bags of gold into my office ready to carry away. And my chief papers of accounts also there. And my tallies into a box by themselves. And it struck me reading that how important it was for him to keep the records of what he'd been writing down. And also it was like he was the first accountant. He kept a tally of everything and he wanted to preserve it. So they go to William Penn, one of his friends. William Penn and he decide that they're going to bury stuff in a hole in the ground to save it from the fire. So in the evening, so William Penn and I dig another hole and put our wine in it. And I, my Parmesan cheese, as well as my wine and some other things because Parmesan cheese was very, very expensive and it kept for ages. And so this is one of the precious things that he buried and he's famous for that. Another description of the fire. And only now and then walking into the garden and saw how horridly the sky looks all on a fire in the night was enough to put us out of our wits. And indeed it was extremely dreadful for it looks just as if it was at us and the whole heaven on fire. But going to the fire, I find by the blowing up of houses and the great help given by the workmen out of the King's Yard, sent by Sir William Penn, there is a good stop to it, as well as at Mark Lane as at ours. It have only been burnt the dial of Barking Church and part of the porch and was there quenched. I up to the top of Barking Steeple and there saw the saddest sight of desolation that I ever saw. Everywhere great fires, oil cellars. They used to keep their fuel in the cellar and brimstone and other things burning. I became afeard to stay there long and therefore down again as fast as I could, the fire being spread as far as I could see it, and to Sir William Penn's and there to eat a piece of cold meat, having eaten nothing since Sunday. And lastly, I thought I'd read this little bit. Walked into moorfields, our feet ready to burn, walking through the town among the hot coals, and find that full of people and poor wretches carrying their goods there and everybody keeping by themselves. I drank there and paid tuppence for a plain penny loaf. And then homeward, having passed through Cheapside and Newgate Market, all burned, and see Anthony Joyce's house on fire, and took up, which I keep by me, a piece of glass of Mercer's Chapel in the street, where much more was, so melted and buckled with the heat of the fire, like parchment. I also did see a poor cat taken out of a hole in the chimney, joining to the wall of the exchange, with the hair all burned off the body and yet alive. So home at night, I find their good hopes of saving our office. 
but great endeavours of watching all night and having men ready. And I lay down and slept a good night about midnight. I hear there's been a great alarm of the French and Dutch being risen. They thought that there were foreigners, blame the foreigners, okay, which proved nothing. But it is a strange thing to say how long this time did look since Sunday, having been always full of actions and little sleep, that it looked like a week or more. And I had forgot almost the day of the week. So that's the great fire of London. And that is so often used as a description of what happened, a personal view. Landmarks such as St Paul's Cathedral and the Guildhall and Salisbury Court, where he was born and his father's house was, and St Bride's, where he and all his family were christened, were destroyed. So the St Bride's that's there now is not the original, as well as St Paul's School. Everything that he knew pretty well, apart from the office, which he helped to save. So he continues his rise upwards, secretary of the new commission of the Admiralty, administrative head of the Navy. Member of Parliament. He has to be a Member of Parliament in order to answer for the Navy in Parliament, so he gets a seat. Now, plots, plots, plots. The Earl of Salisbury, Anthony Ashley Cooper, is a powerful restoration figure. You can follow his life. It's almost as strange and wonderful as Pepys. He was driven by a fanatical hatred of Catholicism and a dislike of arbitrary power. But this is me saying this, unless it was his own, because he's a very arbitrary, powerful man himself. He was constantly veering from one side of the political divide in the Civil War to the other. He was in the group that brought back Charles II, but he didn't get the positions he wanted. And his hatred of James II and the fear of a return to Catholicism under his leadership led him to be a prominent member of the exclusionists, who obviously wanted James excluded from the succession, were working to try and persuade Charles II to do this. He was undoubtedly complicit in all the plots to bring Pepys down whom he hated for his religious tolerance, loyalty to Charles and James, and more importantly, his power and influence at court. And it's clear that Shaftesbury and his cabal were behind a plot in which they bribed at least three rascally fellows to make claims of corruption and popery against Pepys, one of these people being a dismissed servant of his. So it's all very complicated, and you'll have to read more about it yourself to work out what the shenanigans that went on. If we were going to have a villain, you'd have to choose him. Absolutely appalling man. And he was one of the instruments for attempts to bring Pepys down, because he was a notorious lion scoundrel, and he became involved with the schemes, and he seems to have invented, single-handed, Titus Oates' popish plots against the king, obviously, as an agent provocateur to bring down the wrath of the king and the government against the Catholics. I looked him up in Wikipedia. He's named as an English priest by Wikipedia. But when you click on his biography, one of the first pieces of information you're given is that having failed to get a degree at Cambridge, which was necessary then, he falsely claimed to have one and got a license to preach as a result. So he started how he meant to go on and it went worse. He was a fantasist and a fabricator. His accusations of popery caused at least 15 innocent men to be executed between 1678 and 81. Now, the exclusionists and Titus Oates and various other people attempted to bring Pepys down by accusing him of being involved in the murder of Sir Edmund Berry Godfrey. Edmund Berry Godfrey was an English magistrate whose mysterious death caused an anti-Catholic group uproar in England. Nobody's quite unraveled who actually did kill him. It's fairly clear he was killed, although there was attempts to suggest it was suicide at the time. He was involved with Titus Oates 
and taking depositions. He was a magistrate taking down depositions, which were supposed to be true about what the papists had been up to. And he got murdered. And it certainly was nothing to do with peeps, that's for sure. Some suggestions it was the exclusionists in order to cause trouble, but it's more likely some other aristocrat who had a grudge against him got him murdered. And one of his main accusers was one John Scott. This is another of the scandals set up by the exclusionists to testify to Pepys's treachery, which was supposed to also include selling secrets to the French. This exclusionist cabal of his enemies was so strong because the king was forever having to give in to them that the king had to give way to them. And as a result, Pepys was at their mercy. He was forced to resign as secretary to the Admiralty and taken to the Tower. The king didn't seem to be powerful enough to, to defend him at this time. But I have to say, to Philip Pepys, his record keeping was so brilliant that he managed, even before he was sent to the Tower, to prove that he couldn't possibly have had any involvement because he's got a watertight alibi. He was actually in attendance with the King at the time. And then they tried to implicate his close aide, Sam Atkins. And Sam Atkins was present for months and refused to discover, as the word was, anything. They tried to get him to discover stuff against Pete, but he refused. And Pepys sent his time beavering away, proving that Sam also had a watertight alibi, and he was later released after several months. So basically, Pepys got himself and Sam out of it, but they kept on at it. So he ends up in the tower anyway, and he's sort of sacked from his post. And this John Scott is somebody else that you'd have to follow the life of. One of the interesting things about Scott is he started off in America, abandoning his family, ended up in France, wandering around Europe, swindling and blackmailing his way through. And because Pepys, we, he spent a few weeks in the tower, and you could say that his life was never at risk. But on the other hand, plenty of other innocent men had been executed, and he had to give £10,000 of bail money, and that's an enormous amount of money. He got himself out. He sent his French brother-in-law, Balthazar, to France and various other places to discover what this John Scott had been up to. He meticulously recorded the activities of this swindler and blackmailer in a couple of volumes of books. And he called them the Book of Mornemont because this bloke at some point in or another claimed he was some sort of French aristocrat and he was the Count of Mornemont. And it was like a fantasy stuff that fascinated Pepys. There's two volumes of the stories meticulously recorded of what this Scott had got up to. He manages to get out and he survives eventually. And luckily, Shaftesbury dies before him. So when King Charles felt his position was strong enough to ignore his enemies, he's taken into public service. Given his old position and named Secretary of the Affairs of the Admiralty, combining modern offices of the First Lord of Admiralty and Secretary, both administering the service and answering for it in Parliament. President of the Royal Society, his name appears on the title page of Newton's Principia Mathematica. And there's also actually, if you go on Wikipedia, a Newton-Peeps probability problem, because Peeps was corresponding with Newton about the probability of a number six coming up on n number of dice, and there's a probability problem named after them. So when James II fled abroad in 1689, obviously Pepys lost his position and he retired, although he was still pursued by his adversaries and imprisoned for Jacobinism. In other words, trying to bring James and his descendants back again more than once, although no evidence was ever produced. So even in his retirement, he was not safe. So those are the things he survived. 
And then I thought I'd talk a little bit about his legacy. During his time in office, he doubled the Navy's fighting strength. I think it was 30 ships of the line, and it was 60 by the time he finished, and created the great administrative tradition of order, discipline, and service. He was forever making lists of the costs of things, and he would prove that you could save money. He didn't like the fact it was always on credit, because if it was on credit, you always got charged more. So he did some vast amounts of research into it and proved that he could save money, not that the king was into saving money. Instrumental in helping to limit the destruction caused by the fire. Relative to the period, I have this story. When he first got that position, going with his cousin to fetch Charles II back, he was told by some other man in the Navy that he should claim that he got two or three servants with him when he went, and then he could claim for their expenses, even though they didn't exist when he came back. That was the corruption that went on. But relative to the period, he was incorruptible. He would acknowledge presence given him people who got contracts, but he wouldn't necessarily give them another contract unless he thought it was good value. As president of the Royal Society, and I think he was pointed this because they knew he'd do this, he rescued it from financial difficulties, sacked members who didn't pay their membership fees, and started the meticulous recording of their meetings and experiments which still exist today. He left his library of 3,000 books and bookcases. You may have heard the fact that he's one of the earliest people to have built proper bookcases with opening doors and glass to preserve the books. And he had this closet where he kept them all and he'd show his friends and acquaintances very proudly this library of books. He left all his books and the bookcases to his alma mater, Magdalen College, Cambridge. And it's one of the most important surviving 17th century collections. And among them, he put the six volumes of his diary. In the summer of 1692, he told all his friends he was going to the country, but he didn't. He stayed put and shut himself in his library for over three months in order to deal with papers that I have so many years been tumultuously gathering and laying by without a vacancy or hand or head or even to garble, sort or put in order for use either to myself or any that come after me. In September, he confessed his deceit to Evelyn Gale, and he had to admit that his months of confinement had caused his legs to swell. But he completed this small piece of work that demanded three months of absolute solitude. He never explained, but Tomlin guesses that he was reading through his diary slowly, because you may or may not know, he stopped writing his diary because he thought he was losing his eyesight because he spent so much time reading and writing in candlelight. So he thought he'd better stop. But his eyesight didn't deteriorate that much, even though he never continued. But she guesses that he was reading through the diary slowly and considering its future and his own. He knew now that he was not going to achieve literary immortality by writing naval history. He started a naval history, but he didn't finish it. To leave a book behind you is the surest form of afterlife, as Pepys, reader and collector of books, knows well. He had remarked years before on the death of an eminent doctor that he was a man of good judgment, but hath written nothing to leave his name to posterity by. Pepys, however, had. There were six volumes, still decently veiled in shorthand, that might one day speak for him to posterity, if he had the courage to allow them to survive. Sometime during the last years of his life, he thought the matter over, and this mysterious solitary summer stands as a likely moment for him to have done so. The volumes of the diary were replaced on the shelves and renumbered in the new catalogue he made 
1693. And nobody knew they were there. Well, at least they knew they were there, but they weren't properly looked at until the early 19th century. It would have been too dangerous for him to tell anybody. In fact, I only got one reference that he told his friend Coventry. And then afterwards in his diary, he notes he wish he hadn't. He's worried about having told anybody. This is what it says in the Gutenberg. This work has been selected by scholars being culturally important and is part of the knowledge base of civilization as we know it. And lastly, I just thought I would read you the very end, the very last page, the very last entry in his diary, because he is incredibly sad at the thought of giving it up. He doesn't want to at all. End of May, 1669. And thus ends all that I doubt I shall ever be able to do with my own eyes in keeping my journal. I being not able to do it any longer, having done now so long as to undo my eyes almost every time that I take a pen in my hand. And therefore, whatever comes of it, I must forbear. And therefore resolve from this time forward to have it kept by my people in long hand I must therefore be contented to set down no more than is fit for them and all the world to know. Or if there be anything, which cannot be much, now my amours are past, and my eyes hindering me in almost other pleasures, I must endeavour to keep a margin in my book open to add here and there a note in shorthand with my own hand. So he's thinking, I'll get other people to write it in longhand, everything I think is all right to write, and then I'll add little bits in shorthand on my own. But he never did, actually. And so I betake myself that course, which is almost as much as to see myself go into the grave, for which, and all the discomforts that will accompany my being blind, the good God prepare me. He doesn't very often refer to God, our Samuel, but he does there. He desperately wanted to keep doing it, but he sincerely thought that he was losing his eyesight and therefore he gave it up. And although he kept logs and journals of various kinds afterwards, there's nothing, nothing like this before or since, I don't think. So there you go. Two strange little facts. He wrote a novel when he was at university and he reread it and destroyed it later. But he did actually say, more or less, I don't think I could do that as well again now if I tried to. So maybe nowadays he would be a novelist rather than anything else. And also in his diary, apparently, there's the first reference to anybody having a cup of China tea. So there you have him, Samuel Pepys. I'm very fond of him, partly because he's so tolerant in an age of intolerance. Very loved him. With a circle of friends, an enormous circle of friends, it included John Evelyn and the eminent people of his age. So you could spend your life looking at the different aspects of his life. That's Samuel Pepys for you, ladies and gentlemen. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.